0: Welcome to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. I am your host, Sam Kastensmith. I'm the pastor of Spiritual Formation at Rio Vista Community Church, and it is so good to to be with you again. I'm flying solo again this week. I am in my living room again, Uh, my wife is folding laundry behind me, the kids have just gone to bed, we hope, (laughs) and we are coming to the last of a three-part series that we've done on Psalms of Lament and how the Lord gives us these psalms where we find ourselves in deep pain, we're struggling with circumstances, we're crying for a way out. And these Psalms give us, um, kind of a roadmap of how to process that pain. And, and we've talked about this before, but we're not to ignore it. The, the, the scriptures don't come to us and say, well, you're, you're a person of faith. And so this shouldn't harm you. It shouldn't hurt. No, the scriptures come to us and say, no, you should wrestle with these things, but you should wrestle with them alongside and with the Lord. And so the idea of a Psalm of Lament is you are coming with these deep pains, these tears, and you are coming before the Lord with, with this kind of a roadmap to lead you from pain to promise, from, from pain to peace. And in the Process. You're reminding yourself of who God is and how precious He is, and you're coming to realize that these are not things that you are meant to carry. Uh, you can look at God and all of His goodness and everything He's done for you um, and you can trust Him with them. And so, the psalm that we're going to be covering today has been called a psalm of lament by some, but there's a lot of praise in this psalm. It's not as as dark as some, but it's really a beautiful tool that if you find yourself in situations where the circumstances are just mounting up and it feels like all the walls are closing in, <laughs> this is a beautiful psalm with a lot of wonderful truths, Um, that's really good uh, to walk through and to just let your heart marinate in this psalm uh, with the Lord. All right, so here's a question that every kid, and even some adults, uh, we have to each other. If somebody, if you you found a genie, right, and the genie came to you and said, you know, I'm going to give you three wishes, or or, let's make it better yet. I'm going to give you one wish, and you can't wish for more wishes. What is the one thing that you would ask for? You know, and if we're honest, most I think most Americans, most people in the Western, Western culture would, would probably say something like, well, I'd like financial security. I'd like a, a billion dollars. I'd like, you know, and we come to uh, the question and we ask for circumstantial changes. We, we want health. We want something like that. And David in today's psalm is going to show us all up because he, he takes the goody two-shoes answer and says, you know what I would like? I would like more of the Lord. I would like to know him better. I'd like to see his beauty. I want to. I would like to ask questions about him and get to know him better. And we think, oh yeah, 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 that would be nice. That sure, okay, yeah, way to go, David. You you showed us all up. But what I want to talk about today is why that's actually the wisest thing we can do, and how that makes sense far far more than asking for a change of circumstances. And so, Psalm 27, it's 14 verses long, um, and this too, like we talked about, some of the, last week we talked about Psalm 126, and Psalm 126 has a structure where the first three verses are echoed by the second three verses. It's almost like wave number one comes through looking at the past, but then wave number two comes, and it's the, the prayers asking for the future, but they're echoing one another, they're playing off each other. So, verse one and verse four are paired, verse two and verse five are paired, and verse three and verse six. Six are paired. This psalm also has a chiastic structure. Now that's a that's a three dollar seminary word, uh, but the the root of that word chiastic comes from the Greek letter chi, which is the picture of an X. And so it's, you know, one is going one way, the other is going the other way, and they intersect in the middle. And so this psalm, if you if you look at the chiastic structure of Psalm 27, it's 14 verses long. And so you can imagine if I if I printed up all the verses with with verse number one at the top and verse fourteen at the very bottom, and I folded that page top to bottom, then verse one would be touching verse fourteen, and and so on back until you get to the middle of the psalm, which would be at the crease, right, which is happens to be verse eight in this psalm. But what we find here is that verse one. Is interpreted by verse fourteen. Verses two and three are interpreted by verses twelve and thirteen, and so they're speaking to each other as they're coming closer to the middle. And so, if you have a Bible, if you have a phone app where you can open a Bible, it will be very helpful uh, for you to follow along with this and be able to look and see some of the echoes and some of the same words and and patterns of this prayer. But it's very intentional. So we're going to read through this psalm, but as we get into the second half you'll see how the second half is actually interpreting uh, what has gone before. So, let's just uh, jump right in. Verse 1, this is actually one of my favorite psalms. I chose Bethany Christian School's annual biblical theme uh, as Psalm twenty seven four a few years ago. It's just a really, really wonderful psalm, and so I, I hope you enjoy this. Let's go before the Lord and let's just read the psalm together and, and talk about it and just allow this to be devotional you know it's this is wonderful intellectual stuff but but even more than that like personalize this and really do your best to offer this up as a prayer. That's what this is intended for. It's a song. It's a prayer to the Lord that we offer up with our hearts, not just absorb with our minds. And so, David is the author of the psalm and he starts and you kind of, you jump in and you already know where his fear is or or what his big struggle is in the psalm just by what he focuses on in verse one. It starts out and it says, "'The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear?' The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And so, right out of the gates, you have David attributing these titles to God, the light, the one who drives out the darkness, the one who brings beauty, the one who illuminates my path. He's my salvation. He's my stronghold. All these wonderful identities that that show that he feels security, safety, warmth, um, illumination with God. And yet, after each time he comes and says, you know, he's my light and my salvation or he's my stronghold, it's whom shall I fear? Of whom shall I be afraid? And so right out of the gates, it's, it's letting you know that this psalm is coming from somebody who is wrestling with very real fear. Something's going on in his life that is making him afraid. And you know, fear's probably my least favorite emotion, but everybody who's listening to this podcast can relate to that. There are circumstances that you're looking at in your life that are beyond your control. <laughs> 2020 is a wonderful example of that. It feels like this whole year has just been one chaotic turn after the next, and it feels out of control, and it can generate fear and anger. And so, David is coming before the Lord, and he's he's trying to talk himself into comfort and laying aside those fears. And so, he's looking to God saying, whom, uh, whom shall I fear? If, if you're my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? If you're the stronghold of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? He goes on in verses 2 and 3, and he says, when evildoers assail me, okay, well, that <laughs> that's something to be afraid of, an evildoer coming to assail you and to eat my flesh, he says. Yeah, that, that's, that could induce some fear. My adversaries and my foes, it's they who stumble and fall. Verse three, though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. And that's... Really stunning. Like this is this is this is not just uh, exaggeration. It it's not metaphor. And David's life; these are very real things that happened to him. He had his members of his household, his sons, his closest generals, who turned on him and became his adversaries, who who sought to overthrow him. There were moments where, when he was on his throne, there there were literally armies coming against him. So, war coming to his doorstep. These these are not you know poetic images that David's thrown. This is real life stuff that would you know and the heart of any person would induce fear and anxiety and yet he's trying to convince himself right he's saying though war rise against me i'll be confident you know it's going to be my adversaries and my foes who stumble and fall and 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 many of these times where the armies were coming against david it seemed hopeless you know if if vegas was setting odds the odds would not have been on david's side and yet he is he is putting his confidence and the Lord, and so he's got these dire situations that are coming at him. He's got adversaries and armies and everything else that are right outside of his door. And so then he transitions into the petition part of his prayer, where he is going to ask God for something. And if if, if you're if you're like me, you're waiting for him to say, "Oh Lord, deliver me from this army." You know, overthrow my adversaries. You know, take this fear away from me. Change my circumstances, right? That's typically the way we pray. We go before the Lord with a laundry list. <laughs> I just use that expression "laundry list." My wife is, is behind me folding laundry right now, and that's one of her least fa- <laughs> one of her least favorite phrases in the world because it makes no sense. Like, is there are there actually people who make laundry lists? Like, what is what is on this list? <laughs> it's it's basically like, and people aren't writing socks, shirts pants. It's, it's just do the laundry. <laughs> That's the list. But anyway, we use that expression all the time. I do all the time. But we come before the Lord with a laundry list. And, and we say, oh, my life would just be so much better, Lord, if you would just change my circumstances. And so, we go before him in our prayers and we say, God, change my circumstance. This is bothering me, change it. This is bothering me, take it away. But David comes in verse four with this un- believably profound, wonderful, beautiful request. And he could not state it any stronger than he does. He says, One thing, one thing have I asked of the Lord, and this only will I seek after. And you're like, okay, he's one thing. Man, he's got a lot coming at him. There's a lot of circumstances that I just read, you know, that he could have and he says, one thing I'll ask of the Lord, and this only will I seek after. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Now, that is profound wisdom when we come to the Lord in prayer. When all the walls are closing in, when all the circumstances seem to be coming against us, David has the wisdom to know, Lord, I don't need you to change my circumstances. There's always going to be those things that are outside of my control. There's always going to be those things that are coming against me. The most important thing that I need from you right now is to change my heart to meet those circumstances. I need to stop for a moment and to to remember who you are, right? You are the God. And on this side of the cross, good grief, we have an even clearer picture. You are the God who stopped at nothing, who spared no expense to show that you are in the business of doing good for us, that you are going to deliver us, that you are going to conform us more into your image, that you would lay down your life on a cross to purchase us for yourself forever. We are that precious in your sight. And you are the same God who speaks the worlds into existence, the universe into existence by the power of your word. You are sovereign over everything. And so, Lord, I want this one thing. I want to see you for who you are. I want to see you for the depths of your love for me. I want to see you for your sovereignty and and your mercy and your justice and all of your attributes, because if I genuinely believe that you are who you say you are, if I get to see you for who you are, and I know that you are a God who has my back and has promised me good then all of a sudden, all these other circumstances in my life don't seem so dire. All of a sudden, when I recognize that this is the God who has me in the palm of his hand, who delights in me, who sings over me, who, who encircles me and surrounds me as your word says that you do, now all of a sudden, I can look at those circumstances and they're not so frightening after all. So, Lord, help me. Don't I don't want to go before you and say, Lord, just change my circumstances. But help me to remember who I am in the middle of my circumstances and who you are in the middle of my circumstances, because that will bring me peace when I know that I'm in your hands. And so, he says, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple, which back then is just another way of saying, I want to know your word, right? When when they would go to the temple, the idea or the tabernacle in David's day, the whole idea of that was that you were being taught by the best of the best, the best of the priests that were coming and they were expounding on his word. You remember when when Jesus is 12 years old and he gets lost in the temple, well, what, what's going on there? They're having a discussion of the about the word and the priests are amazed at how advanced Jesus's knowledge of the word is. This is the idea. Every time that Jesus teaches and And the temple courts, that's the idea. This is where all the sermons are happening. This is where they're diving deep into God's word. And the idea is that is how we find the beauty of the Lord. We get to know him through his word. We get to know him not just in how he has delivered us in the past and how our relationship is but we get to see his character and the way that he has always interacted with his people throughout history. We get to see his beauty and his word as we inquire in the temple about who he is. And so, let's stop there. So, there's the first four verses. And so, it's like I said, the the end, the last four verses are going to help us to to kind of take a look at this, right? So, let's go to verse 1 and remember how this starts, it's David saying, I'm going to remember who God is. I'm going to remember who he is and how much he loves me. He's my light, my salvation. He's my stronghold. Whom shall I fear? Of whom shall I be afraid? That's the question. And then when you get to verse 14, at the end, it's it's coming backward, but it's giving the answers, right? And this is what you're to do. How are you to overcome your fear? Well, verse 14 tells you, in your circumstances, when you don't see a way out, when, when the walls are closing in, verse 14 comes and says, wait for the Lord, be strong and let your heart take courage. Don't be afraid, take courage, wait for the Lord. It repeats it again. And so how do you confront those situations where it's totally out of control and you think, I've got to do something, I've got to fix this, I've got to fix this. The psalmist is coming and saying, remember who your God is, wait for him. Wait for him to move. Take courage in knowing that he is going to deliver you here. In verses 2 and 3, we see that David is coming and he's talking about the, the evildoers who are coming to assail me and eat up my flesh and the adversaries and foes and the armies that are encamping camp- outside the walls and war is arising against me, right? Well, verses 12 and 13, as we're coming closer to the seam, if we're folding the psalm in half, we're coming closer to the seam, it's an echo. Well, David's going to say, give me not up to the will of my adversaries. You hear the echo? For false witnesses have risen up against me and they breathe out violence. But then he says, I believe I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord and the land of the living. You know, in verse three, he says, "Though war arise against me, I'll be confident. And then he expresses that confidence at the end. He says, I believe I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And this is something that the Christian has, this this incredible belief in the sovereignty of God that even when bad stuff is going on in our life, even, even when all the circumstances don't make sense, we have the promise of the scriptures that God is working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And so here's David. Long before Romans, that verse is written, you have David saying, I believe I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I believe that God is going to take all of these circumstances that are generating fear and panic in my life and anxiety in my life. I believe that something good is going to come out of them in the land of the living. Not just when I die, but he's going to do something beautiful even with that here in the land of the living. And so verse four, this unbelievably beautiful verse, one thing I ask of the Lord, and this I'll seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. I wanna, I wanna know the Lord, I wanna see him, I wanna remember his character, I wanna, I wanna fill my mind and my heart with more and more of who he is and to take comfort in that, right? Well, you get to verse 11, as we're coming closer to the crease, and you have David saying, teach me your way, O God. Remember, to inquire in the temple is the Bible study. Well, on the other side of this, you have David saying, teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on the level path because of my enemies. Show, essentially, echoing, saying, show me who you are. I want to I know you. I want to I know your ways. I want to I just saturate in the truth of who you are and so we move closer to the same verse 5 for he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble he will conceal me under the cover of his tent he will lift me high on a rock and that's almost a scandalous thing to say he goes on and he says and now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me and i will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy and if you understand what david is saying at this time in the Old Testament, he's a king. He's not, the only people who were allowed to go inside the tent of God, which is the tabernacle, only a particular tribe, only the priests were allowed to go into the tabernacle and only the high priest could go into the presence of God once a year on the day of atonement. No one else was allowed to go into the presence of God inside of his tent or they would be struck dead And here you have David saying, you are going to hide me in your shelter in the day of trouble. You're going to conceal me under the cover of your tent. You're going to lift me high on a rock and my head is going to be lifted up. I might be hanging my head in fear and shame right now, but you, God, are going to lift my head above my enemies all around me. And then I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. And do you know that this psalm is prophetic? Because this is our reality now. Because of what Jesus has done, because Jesus went to the cross and he has taken on himself all the things that defile us, all of our sins, Jesus took upon himself on the cross and he clothed us with his righteousness. So, guess what? Now, what does the New Testament say to us? Oh, come back boldly before the throne of grace. Enter into the temple, come before the glory and the holiness of God with boldness. Why? Not because you're good enough, not because you warrant and deserve my favor, but because God is totally gracious and he welcomes you in because you have been cleansed by the power of the blood of his son. And so now you come into the tent, into the, the very presence of God, and he lifts your head and he has wiped away your shame. And now you can go before him with shouts of joy, right? Even though everyone else is against you. And what's verse 10? So the, the other side of this, as we you know, come to the crease together in this chiasm, verse 10 says this, for my father and my mother have forsaken me but the lord will take me in wow so the the on the first half in verses 5 and 6 the focus is all the enemies are coming against me all my adversaries want me but the lord is going to defend me the lord's going to take me in but then in verse 10 you see it's it's even more intense than that it's not just adversaries it's not just enemies but even When my father and my mother have forsaken me, even when those that are the closest to me in in ancient Israel, the, the family unit was so intense, way more than we understand today. But even when my father and my mother have forsaken me, the Lord will take me in. That has to resonate with lots of people out there who feel, you know, like not only is the world against them, but even those closest to you have failed you even those that that have sworn and, and, and it's their duty to love and protect you, they've turned their back on you. Hear this, but the Lord will take me in. The wellspring of infinite love, the one who will never leave you, will never forsake you, will never walk away, will never abandon you. Even if your father and mother turn their back on you, even if those closest turn their back on you, the Lord will take you in. And how can he make that promise? Just to gain a glimpse, you know, of how beautiful he is. The only reason why the Lord can make that promise to us and all of our sin and all of our shame and all the ways that we disappoint him is because our God, the very one to whom we're praying this prayer, that God took on flesh, came down into this world, experienced what it was like to have enemies and adversaries coming after him, to devour his flesh, literally, you know? That's what we celebrate in communion. There's there's some poetry in that. But even his friends turned on him. And at the height, the climax of the cross, what does Jesus cry out? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know what the answer to that question is, right? Why have you forsaken me? Jesus crying out to his father, this eternal relationship that had just generated bliss for all of eternity past. Here's Jesus crying out, why have you forsaken me? And the answer is you. Jesus was forsaken because he took on my shame and your shame, my sin and your sin. And the father turned his face away and poured out the wrath that we deserved upon Jesus. Why? So that now you and I are clothed in righteousness. And so now the Lord gives us the promise that he will never leave us nor forsake us. He will always take us in. And coming closer to the crease, verse 7 I will sing and make melody to the Lord. I mean, you hear David's heart softening as he's as he's marinating in this truth. You know, he starts kind of like, you know, I, I shouldn't be afraid. Well, now he's turned away from the fear and he's like, I will sing and make melody to the Lord as I think more about who he is. Like you can feel him getting excited. Hear, O oh Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. And so, in verse 7, you get all of these positive petitions. He says, hear me, O God, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. David is, is saying, God, I want to be in relationship with you. I want you to hear me and I, I want to be heard by you. I, I, I want to I be in relationship with you. And what is verse 9? It's, again, a flurry of petitions, just like verse 7 on the other side of the crease. Except now it's the negative side. Instead of, hear me, O God, or be gracious to me or answer me, now he's saying, hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. And so as we come closer to the crease, you find more and more intensity of David saying, I need relationship with you. It's, you know, at the extremities, it's very much look at the circumstances and look how you're going to answer the circumstances. And as you get closer, it's, you know, this one thing I need, I need to see your face, I need to be with you. And as you get closer and closer, it's, Lord, hear me, be gracious to me. I need relationship with you. That's going to be the solution. And when you come to the pinnacle, now in a chiastic and ancient Hebrew literature, when you came to the pinnacle of the chiasm, this is the most important verse. It's the key on which the whole rest of the psalm rests, okay? And it's exactly that. It's, Lord, I need relationship. And so, David is going to call God out in this verse on a promise that God had made. And he says, Lord, you have said, you have commanded, seek my face That's what you want from me. That's your great desire. So in other words, if you had one thing, Lord, that you could lay, like my one thing is I want to see your face, but you know what God says? You know, the one thing he wants from us, I want to see your face. It's intensely personal. He wants relationship with us. He wants your heart. He wants surrender. He wants relationship. He calls us his bride. And so David says, hey, God, you said to me. You commanded, seek my face. And so, then the second half of verse eight is David saying, okay, well, my heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek? Lord, I want you. I want to be in relationship with you. And I mean, you're imagining David having this this amazingly intimate conversation with God with all the chaos around him, All the circumstances. And what is, what's David, the cry of his heart, the greatest intensity is, Lord, I want you. I want to know you. I want to feel you. I I want, I want to understand more of who you are. Because if I grab hold of you, all the things that I'm afraid of losing. So, because let's, let's just get right down to it. You know, the circumstances, they come and they threaten all kinds of stuff that we have that we hold precious. So, for David, you know, they're coming to threaten his kingdom. They're coming to threaten his city. They're coming to threaten his family. They're coming to threaten his life. And those are treasured things, right? You know, and so David, naturally, he's fearing his his whole world is turned upside down. He could lose all of those things. He could lose his kingdom. He could lose the city. He could lose his life. He can't control that. But he recognizes that there is one thing, one thing in this life that he can never lose. You know what that is? The love of the Lord. The God who comes and says, I overcome the grave. I have a kingdom that's not of this world. I've got an inheritance that can never be stolen from you. I've got a love that is not conditioned upon your circumstances or your performance. I am the only treasure that you have in your life that doesn't crumble and and vacillate and convulse and that's not contingent upon all the circumstances and craziness that's going on in the world. I am the one sure thing in your life. I am your great treasure. And David is saying, man, if I believe that, if I begin to see you as my treasure, it will bring absolute peace to my heart because nothing, God, nothing can rip me out of your hands. You are that faithful and that strong and that mighty and that precious. And so, Lord, you are my one thing. Your face do I seek. And when we take that route, when we're struggling through panic, when we're struggling through fear and anger and a world that's in convulsions and, and totally unpredictable, when we grab hold of the one sure thing, our one unshakable treasure, the Lord Himself, He puts everything in its proper priority and its proper context, and then we can have peace and delight and the treasure of his love, of his grace, of his mercy, of his sovereignty, of his promises. And when we do that, everything else looks kind of petty by comparison. That's the wisdom of David in Psalm 27. And so, I hope you enjoyed uh, this devotional time. I hope that as you pray this Psalm, you can kind of trace that out. And, you know, for David, it might be armies. But for you, what is it that's driving your heart to fear? What is it that's that's taking your eyes off of the Lord and making you fear the loss of something? You know, open your hands. Let go of those things and trust them to the Lord. And then take those same hands and grab the Lord with everything you have and make Him your treasure. And that will bring joy to your heart. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week.